detective? Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, Celestial event. No words. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy Podcast, the crossroads where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. And for the month of October, it's going to be mostly horror. I'm your host, Nathan Bartlewall, and I am joined by my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. Bill, how are you doing today? I'm doing just awesome. How are you doing, Nathan? I'm doing well, Bill, and I am really excited about today's episode. We are continuing on with our October Halloween spooky-related episodes. Last time we brought you Underrated Horror. And this time we're going to bring you a single review of a movie that I really, really like. It's the classic 1961 film The Innocents, directed by Jack Clayton and based off of The Turn of the Screw uh, by Henry James. And, and, and what's really cool about today's episode is Bill and I are going to be joined by not one, but two guests from the same podcast. This is Father and Son Watch Horror. It's one of my favorite horror podcasts. Matt Rawlings and his son Jackson, they tackle different horror films together, and it's a really cool experience to watch the father and the son interact. They're here today, and I'm going to go ahead now and let Matt and Jackson introduce themselves. Hey, I'm just here. I I, I exist only to let Jackson talk. So, <laughs> well, I don't know about that. You keep me on track. I think you're the straight man in this in, in our podcasting ventures. But Nathan, let me just say, uh, I was listening to your most recent VOD Roulette episode with Greg Bench, and uh, I've just got to see a Chinese ghost story now because that movie sounds so wild. I immediately wrote that one down. Oh, cool. And if you act now, <laughs> it's still on Amazon. <laughs> it's still on Amazon Prime, I believe. Because be after close. that, you're going to have to get like a bootleg from, you know. And I, I, I would be curious for you to show this to your professor when you go to school for uh, film school. Say, is this the way we should follow it or not? <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll certainly be interesting. He'll be like, so what kind of movies do you like? And I'm like, well, I have this crazy little Chinese picture for you. When I took a film class when I was in college, that one of the movies that the professor showed, it wasn't Chinese Ghost Story, but it was a Chu Hark movie like the Warriors of Zoo Mountain. It was just as ridiculous and silly. And everybody stopped him and was like, why did you show us this? And he's like, to understand that movies are more than, you know, Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very important. You can have fun with the art form. Was your professor Quentin Tarantino? <laughs> no, because every movie would have been like that would have been um, backed up with you know, Switchblade Sisters. And yes. Stuff like that. Yeah. Every movie would have been uh, it, it would have been taken off the video nasty list. <laughs> but um, before we do get started with this, I did want um, just uh, tell everyone who's listening to this podcast a little bit about your show, because I think it's it's really awesome. Love the episodes. I know you guys have some kind of uh, October theme things going on over there, too, I believe. But if you want to talk a little bit about that and the show, um Go for it. 
Yeah, father and son watch horror movies. Um, it's hard to believe we're 60-some episodes in. We've been doing it for a couple years, started monthly, then we went to weekly. And um, for this October, we are covering the Scream franchise. Very Jackson, cool. Yeah, that. Jackson, you have anything to add to that, buddy? Yeah, I just want to say uh, it has been incredible, this whole podcasting community. And, and Nathan and Bill, you guys are some of the most supportive. Uh, I just – we dove into this not knowing what to expect in December of 2018, and uh, everybody has been so supportive and awesome. And it's just felt very refreshing to be able to share your taste with other people and get feedback on it because I feel like that's missing in this modern age a lot of the time. You just hear this huge wave and uproar of people. I hate this movie or I love this movie. But with the horror podcasting community, I feel like there's a lot of thoughtful discussion, which is awesome. I love that you're doing Scream because that has a little bit of Canadian content to it as well. What Canadian content is in Scream? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Miss Nev Campbell. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Well, she migrated south as, you know, respectable <laughs> people should. <laughs> she migrated. <laughs> I am not going to go there on this episode. I'm not going to. There's another podcast that I used to participate in a long, long time ago. And I had a um, I was just an occasional guest. And, and one of the guys referred to your beloved nation as, quote, America's hat. <laughs> <laughs> guess it depends what kind of hat. They're a cool hat. So, so I guess Neil Young just followed that lately. Yeah. Well, there's a reason why he's still living in California, bro. <laughs> it's because he doesn't like shoveling. That's why. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned Nev Campbell. I remember, I think, right before Scream, she she was in a, uh, like, it might have been a Showtime or TV production of the Canter the Canterville Ghost, I think, with Patrick Stewart, oh, which is not it. a bad one. Like, it, it it's a good one for, I, I should probably look it up for the kids, because it's a decent one for the younger crowd, you know. Uh, not It's not horror, but it's a fun kind of spooky, it would make a good um, kid sort of Halloween movie so um however not not as kid friendly although you could probably still show it to kids (laughs) would be uh the movie we're going to talk about today and i'm really excited about it uh have either one of you seen this movie prior to preparing for this episode i have seen it several times jackson what about you never today was my first time ever and uh, I, again, that's another thing that I love about your show, giving me so many great suggestions. This was one where I had heard about it, of course, and I had probably seen the poster before. But when I sat down to watch it, I was like, this seems oddly familiar. And then I realized why. And I don't know if you want to get to this or not, but there have been quite a few adaptations of the source material, material recently. So it's very familiar to me. Yeah, there, there have been several. And this, uh, this movie is The Innocence from 1961. It stars Deborah Carr, and it's directed by Jack Clayton. And I I think that Jack Clayton is actually an underrated director. He's got a lot of movies to his name. Another movie that I think fits in perfectly for this time frame of the year and is one of my favorite movies, particularly for the, the autumn time, is Something Wicked This Way Comes, yes. which is oh, made yeah. many years later in the 80s, 1983. But I think that some of the qualities that are in this film exist in that film, too. And uh, I, I love both of them. This is adapted, as Jackson was sort of um, alluding to, from The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, which is a classic ghost story. The Turn of the Screw has been adapted many times, and as you pointed out, Jackson, it was a, it's been adapted many times recently, including a version that came out to theaters last uh, January, I, I want to say. I know it was one of the last movies I ended up seeing at the theater before everything kind of went on quarantine, and... 
Then also we have The Haunting of Bly Manor, which just came out, and I haven't got a chance. I saw the first episode, but I haven't proceeded any further yet. Uh, so if any of you guys have seen any of it, you can we can talk about that in a little bit. But that's it's modern setting, but just as, as they adapted The Haunting of Hill House, uh, they're adapting kind of Turn of the Screw. And I guess I can just go really quickly and sort of uh, give the basic setup. But yeah, I think that most people that are going to come to this will be familiar with it, even if they haven't seen this particular movie. They've probably seen some kind of version of it. When you open this particular movie, you start, you see hands praying, and it begins from there. And that image, you're not sure where it's happening or what's going on, or if it's sort of just in somebody's head. But that image comes back into play later, and I thought it was very interesting in how we're almost placed into a person's mindset before we have any concept of who they are or what is going on or anything like that. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Oh, and I let me pause for my, my co-host here. Bill, had you ever seen The Innocence before today? Yes, I had seen it, but it, it had actually been a while. So it was nice to kind of revisit it. And, you know, you kind of forget, you remember the overall story and you kind of remember the overall themes, but some of the subtleties... I think we'll get into things like Freddie Francis's Cinemascope things yes. and, and, and the use of sounds and shadows. And it's a very visceral senses type film, if you want to take it like that. So there are some of those things you get on a second, a third and a fourth viewing on a really good transfer that you don't get that you remember from 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, and you brought up, you know, the praying hands, which do come back later. But even before that, there's the song, right? Oh, you're right. Yes, you just you, you've got the song playing over the before even the 20th Century Fox logo comes up. Yeah, and it's funny because when the song comes on, you might think it's a pastoral religious type song, but it is not. No. <laughs> well, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. So let me set this up very quickly. But you have Miss Giddens, who is a nanny who's coming to watch these kids, and we she doesn't arrive at Bly Manor, where the children actually are, these two young kids, it's a boy and a girl, uh, at the very beginning. We see her interviewing for this position, and when she goes to interview for it, she's interviewing with their uncle, who has sort of come into a place where he has the kids, and he has no interest in you know caring for them but he wants to make sure they're cared for and he'll they'll do it at his summer home he doesn't even want to kind of see them so he's mostly out of the picture and there's a couple of people out there but she's going to kind of come be governess and she's replacing she learns in this initial meeting and she's very emphatic you know that i love children it becomes clear that she has none of her own and it seems like it might be one of those cases where she isn't you know it's 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 not necessarily her will that she doesn't have children right now but we get little snippets that she is basically she's living alone and previous to this she was living uh grew up in a very kind of strict religious environment with her father there's hints as it goes forward that she had a rather cloistered upbringing but she's she's very emphatic that she cares about children and they're the most important thing in the world to her and she gets the job, and when she goes to Bly Manor, she initially, when she gets there, the little girl is there, Flora, but the boy, Miles, is, he's away at boarding school, but then he comes back pretty quickly into the story because he's sent home, and we don't know exactly initially why he's sent home. That's another thing that uh, Miss Giddens is learning, is that, oh, there's some things going on with the kids and their behavior, and they're, they're, 
they're very eerie, but it's an eeriness that seems to come from the fact that they do not behave all the time like children. Many times they behave like, uh, they're very precocious, they behave like they're a little bit older than they are, but they also have a very sort of mischievous streak to them. And so she's interacting with this and she doesn't know what to make of it. And then she starts to see things. And in, and, and what's interesting about this movie version uh, and in turn of the screw, it was the same thing. She starts to see apparitions. The governess is seeing things appear near the children, shapes, visions, images. And as she sees these things, she starts to ask questions. And we've got the uh, the housekeeper there who's kind of letting her know. She keeps telling her things. And she's very frustrating. She'll tell her a little bit, like, we shouldn't talk about the dead, but here's this other thing you need to know. You know, it's the classic people who know things, and they they just give you a little bit of information and a little bit at a time. But as this continues, she starts to really believe that there are spirits, spirits of the previous governess and of the valet, who apparently had a very tumultuous relationship together, and were also regularly in the proximity of the kids, that these kids sort of idolized them and followed them around, and they were having this sort of affair that sometimes borders into the violent. You know, in this movie, this movie in 1961, there are little flashes and intimations, but it sounds like there was a lot of uh, not-so-kosher stuff going on between the valet Peter Quinn and the uh, and the previous governess a previous governess who was Mary Jessel and and she often sees these things when she's in the company of the children the children they they don't cop to seeing it but she wonders if they're lying to her or not and this keeps building and we get to a point where she starts to believe that these dead people they both passed away before she got here uh, one of an accident and one of a potentially broken heart she thinks they're trying to reconnect to this world via the children and that possibly there's a case of possession and she needs to do something about it. And I think plot-wise, we probably don't have to go much further than that, but that's kind of the setup uh, that we come into. And I think what's interesting about Clayton is he's very careful about when Miss Giddens learns something and when she sees something, if that makes sense. Yeah, Jack Clayton was an interesting guy. Um he was a notorious perfectionist. He didn't work as much as he should have, partly because he was a perfectionist. Uh, he also had a major flop with The Great Gatsby, you know, in 1974 with Robert Redford. But he was also a heavy drinker, chain smoker, had a tripwire temper, and was a notorious pub brawler. A renaissance man. <laughs> a renaissance man, if you will, yes. A, a, a so, perfectionist auteur by day and an English hooligan by night. Yes. I was going to say, but I, I heard an interview on the BBC, I was telling Nathan before, with uh, Peter Wingard and uh, Deborah Kerr. It's obviously a few years older. And one thing Deborah Kerr said about Archibald, or was that, or, sorry, Clayton, was that, you know, when most directors have a problem with an actor, they'll just yell across the set, hey, get at your spot. He would take them aside suddenly and then say, you know, you might want to try to this, that, and the other. So she loved working for him. So I don't know if it's a bit of Jekyll and Hyde, if it's a little bit of imbalance. It seemed to be because his editor said the same thing. His editor said that when he was working, he was very professional. Uh, as I said, a perfectionist. He had a very distinct vision for what he wanted. But then when the work was done and they hit the pub, he hit it a little too hard. Work hard, play hard. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But he could have done so much more. He was actually originally attached to direct the first version of The Born Identity. 
Um, and he was also um, given the job of directing Casualties of War. Both of those things, Casualties of War was actually yanked two weeks before they're getting ready to shoot, and De Palma later resurrected it. But he was the original choice to do both of those films. Because yeah, you can see it in his stylistics and the way that you know certain scenes were shot and the settings and the angles. The guy knew his craft. So, and when you look at his IMDb, it's like, but why does he only have 15 films over, you know, 35 years or whatever? And there's obviously gaps in there that we don't know about. Maybe he got blackballed. Maybe he didn't get along with heads of studios. Maybe he was tough to work. I don't know. But there's something that's not said that probably is out there. Well, he also had a stroke in 1977. Okay. Okay. So from the heavy drinking and smoking. So that may have had a big deal to deal with it. Yeah, and I think some of his experiences later were marred by... And he has a very classical style of filmmaking. I think that's one of the things that sets Something Wicked This Way comes apart is it's made in 83, but it doesn't feel like a movie made in 83, no, right? No, that, absolutely. That's, that's to its advantage in some ways because it isn't taking place in today's world. It's taking place in this nostalgic world of the, of the past that Bradbury knew growing up, and that's what makes it work. But I do know that, you know... He had a lot of the control of that movie taken away, too. Disney wanted to come in and add some special effects. And as kind of uh, the, the the pacing of that movie still is very gentle and very languid, but apparently it was even more so in the cut that he had. He had a cut that was much richer in character development. I think Bradbury, who wrote the script or screenplay for this, also has alluded to the same thing, that even though I think it's a great movie and seems like other people do as well, that they thought it was less than it should have been because of all the interference that happened in it. And you can see a little bit of that. There are scenes that don't quite seem to make a lot of sense from one scene to the other. But I think that maybe it was a thing of, you know, some of these directors, I think they became relics of the past when people were looking for something different and they were still making these sort of classically mounted movies. But... It is a shame that, for whatever reason it is, that he didn't do more work. Because most of the work I've seen of his, I think it's always fascinating. And I, I'm, I'm in, interested in Jackson's POV as an aspiring filmmaker. What was his take on the way the film was actually shot? I think it looks beautiful. I think every choice that he made was a smart one. I love the CinemaScope, first of all, that wide, beautiful widescreen. You can get everything in frame. And I think a lot of the time, he also uses kind of split focus technique. One of my favorite shots in the whole movie is when she's, uh, when, uh, well, what is her name? Miss, Miss Giddings? Miss, Miss Giddens? Giddens? Odd name. I had never heard it before, but uh, she's talking to the little girl. And she's, she's talking about Miles, and the little girl's just totally ignoring her and looking at the spider eating a butterfly. And it's a split focus where you can see both uh, the governess and the little girl in the same fo- – and it's just a beautiful-looking uh, l- shot. I don't know a lot about Clayton as a director. I'm interested in seeing a lot of the movies he's directed. I'm looking at his IMDb right now. Um, looks like he does predominantly dramas. Um not not so much horror, but as you said, I'm I'm interested in seeing uh, something wicked this way comes because I've never seen it before. Yeah, there's there, there's a scene at the end in a funhouse mirror setting that you'll I, I really would love your take on that. Okay, I'll add it to the watch list. But um, yeah, I, I love the way this was directed, and I think from hearing about his onset behavior, it sounds like he's a really good actor's director, and you can definitely see the product of that with the performances in this movie. Yeah, and I'm curious, Jackson, because you had mentioned you had seen this story before. 
in a general feel, uh, and we can kind of go around the, the horn on this at this point, what was your general overall feeling about this movie and its take on the story, particularly compared to the versions you'd previously seen? Well, I'd only seen uh, a bad version, in my opinion, uh, which is The Turning with Finn Wolfhard, uh, a recent movie. I think it was a mess. Uh, it looked good, but it was a mess. I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> yeah, well, I this is a much more successful adaptation, in my opinion, uh, just because everything builds so perfectly. Nothing feels out of left field with this. And when a big reveal hits you, it feels like, oh, I should have seen this earlier. You know, this, this makes sense to me now. And it's ambiguous in the perfect kind of way where you f it feels rewardingly ambiguous rather than just confusingly ambiguous. Um, and I think it, it strikes that perfect uh, balance between confusing and like totally definite and inarguable and unambiguous. But um, I absolutely love the way they, they uh, adapted. I haven't read the whole short story. I'm, I'm sorry to say just the synopsis of it because I don't even know where I would find a good copy of that. But, uh, yeah, I really love the script in this one. And compared to The Turning, this is a huge – this is just a – this is Citizen Kane essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I agree. I think a lot of that is down to exactly how he directed it. And I've seen several versions, even, you know, probably five or six beyond just the turning. And I haven't seen any of them truly that I think work really well in the way that this one does. And I think part of it is the way, the nature of the story, because Henry James' story is, it also plays with that ambiguity of, are there ghosts or aren't there not ghosts? It plays a lot with the psychological, but it does have these sort of, uh, flourishes of gothic supernatural imagery. And I think that sometimes people don't know what to do with that. Are we going to go literal? Or are we not going to go literal? And how do we do both? Uh, Matt, what did you think of the movie, like uh, this time coming back to it? And even what you thought maybe the first time you saw it? The first time I, I saw it when I was really young, and I, I thought it was a little slow. I don't think I really understood it, to be honest. I certainly didn't understand you know, how Capote uh, came in and kind of stuck a lot of Freudian elements in it. I didn't understand that at all when I saw it when I was like 12 years old. Um, but having watched it maybe three times in the last 15 years, I've really grown to appreciate it. And I have it's been a long time since I've read The Turn of the Screw. I used to use it as a uh, as a text uh, once upon a time. I was an adjunct English professor at our local state university so i taught british literature i taught american literature i taught freshman english <clears throat> i will go to heaven for that if nothing else <laughs> but oh man oh my gosh uh but you know coming to it this time i watched it yesterday again with my wife and, and she's not a fan of horror but she was immediately hooked one, she kept saying how beautifully shot it was, which we've which we've mentioned. Uh, Deborah Kerr is absolutely amazing in it. Um, it. It just absolutely shocks me that she was nominated for an Oscar six times and never won. Um, you know, she's wonderful. The rest of the cast, I mean, you're talking about Martin Stevens as Miles, who was just coming off Village of the Damned. You've got Pamela Franklin as Flora, who had let her show up in Legend of Hell House. Megs Jenkins, who was in Asylum. Great cast very it's a thought-provoking screenplay that's shot beautifully with wonderful performances it's a fairly i would say fairly what i remember um faithful adaptation of turn of the screw in many ways so i love this movie absolutely love it 
Yeah, and, and I think it. My memory of it is it is very faithful. And I, I mentioned this, but I mentioned it again a little bit. Is the one thing that I think that Clayton does that's different here that actually kind of probably does make a difference. And I say Clayton, but it's also potentially Capote. And I know that primarily this was based off of both what Truman Capote did with working on the script. And then also there was a stage play that a lot of this is adapted for. Yeah. Harold Pinter also was involved in writing the screenplay. Yeah. Pinter is uncredited, but yeah, he also, so you have a lot of really talented people involved. And the nice thing is that the final result doesn't look like, a sort of patch job, right? It, it doesn't look like someone came in here and did this, at least uh, once the final product is there. But the novel, the and you you can see this play, played out in The Turning, and also I know enough of, of Blind Manor to know that this is the case, that the protagonist, that the governess is more of a 20-something, and she was in the, in the book as well, or in the story. And so changing that here, I, that... Uh, Bill and I were looking at this. Deborah Carr is 40 years old when she is in this film. So you've got a 20 years older, and you they also keep kind of seeding through that element of the kind of lifestyle she grew up in. It was a little cloistered. And you do already create a different thing because you get the idea that the young 20-year-old girl is probably very susceptible to these creepy stories, right, that she maybe has a wide-eyed sort of sense. This 40-year-old woman who's coming into it and hearing these things, you're wondering, well, how would she be affected by it? But if she has this sort of cloistered upbringing, it, I don't know, it makes her seem almost less reliable in a sense. She's a little bit older and she's getting, she's being immediately drawn into these things. You'd almost expect it with the maybe someone who would seem to be a little more excitable. So it makes her, I don't know, to me, it maybe makes her seem a little bit uh, even more unreliable or, 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 or thinking, hey... Is her psyche able to handle this? I don't know. And I think that that element, it also makes her a little bit more uh, commanding, right? Because in the turn of the screw, my main memory is that you keep see, you fear mostly for what might happen to this young woman. You fear for the kids too. But here, there's a certain point I think we can talk about where it seems to flip. And in this movie, in The Innocence, there's a point where you're starting to feel more concerned for the children, not unlike something like The Shining. I was trying to think of movies that handle their supernatural elements similarly, and I, the one that Bill and I were talking about is this feels a lot like The Shining in the sense that there are actual ghosts that you see on screen. Uh, you know, they stay on screen for a while. They are haunting. They are there. You get to look at them, and they don't look right. Uh, even though in this particular film, they really are just people, but it's the way in which he presents them and brings them into the shots. And yet... By that point in the movie, and like we had mentioned with the song and the praying hands, we're already pretty much latched into the head of the governess to the point that these ghosts, just because we can see them and they feel concrete, doesn't mean that they actually are real or aren't just in her head. And I think that's the trouble with some modern movies is they're so literal that, oh, the ghosts are clearly there, there's nothing else to worry about. And that's what makes me think of The Shining, the way that by the time we start seeing these concrete ghostly images, we're not sure whose head we're in exactly and if their head is has been right at all. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's a lot there, um, you know, Nathan, because obviously, you know, Edmund Wilson had apparently published a uh, article interpreting Turn of the Screw through Freudian, you know, terms. And that Clayton really liked his article. And so, you know, that's why he reached out to Capote because he knew Capote was um, had read Freud. And, and so Capote took a break from In Cold Blood to kind of delve into it and put the Freudian elements into it. Um, I'm not so sure. I'm not convinced 
that James was uh, a Freudian because at the time that he wrote Turn of the Screw, Freud had not yet become Freud. Right. Yeah. You know, he the Pleasure Principle wasn't published till like 1920. Uh, it was a year after the turn of the screw that he got kind of a wide publication with interpretation of the dreams and all that kind of stuff. So I, I but that certainly Clayton, you know, was invested with the Freudian interpretation of it. He he really kind of liked it. I did see an interview. Maybe it was the same interview you saw, Bill, where Deborah Kerr was talking and he asked she asked Clayton, she said, is this all in her head or is this real? And Clayton turned around and said, your choice. Yeah, I had, I, I had heard that um, uh, through a third party. And I think Clayton wanted the actors and the actresses to kind of just interpret it on their own. And he was just going to capture how they interpreted it. Yeah, but going back to, yeah, to, to Nathan's point, there's certainly the implication there that I think you may have been implying earlier, Nathan, that because of the way she was raised, uh, that there's a fair amount of sexual repression and that that may be driving her insane or driving her to see visions. Because it's very interesting that at the end of the day, she believes both children are possessed, but who does she send away? Yeah, and and you see that start to play out in the way she begins interacting with him the minute that he she is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, th- I was going to say, I think it's interesting that they chose her as a 40-year-old, because if they had used somebody who was 22 or so, as the book portrays, you wouldn't have believed that they maybe had that history of sexual repression or the life having lived, and they're kind of getting to the penultimate point at the age of 40. But the fact that she's 40 means she's gone through sexual issues, that she's lived a life, she's had some life experiences. So I actually think her age works while not having to do the overt sexuality. It's more about interpreting the character more than the revealing, you know, blow shot like a hammer film would have or something. <laughs> yeah, when she it's interesting that when she sees the vision of Quint in the window and, you know, she's talking to the maid, she describes him as, quote, handsome and obscene. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's kind of almost the way that you would call a criminal. Yeah, right? yeah. And then, you know, she's convinced that Miles is possessed by Quint. And then there's that disturbing scene where Miles has her in a headlock and saying, you're my prisoner, you're my prisoner. And you see this really kind of look of, well, it's hard to discern what Deborah Kerr is kind of projecting there. Yeah. And I think that's one of like the strengths. It's very strange. And that scene, when he gets her in the headlock, that's what's interesting about how meticulous this movie's put together. He gets her in the headlock immediately after she has picked up the picture of, of Quint. So she's just seen him for the first time. Like, it's not at the window. It's in that picture that she finds in the attic. And suddenly he's got her in the headlock, and she's hearing this voice behind her. And it's as she later comes to believe he's possessed, she's just looked at this guy. And obviously this is where she would have come up with the, he looks handsome and obscene, right? She talks about that's what she saw at the window. But as the, as the housekeeper kind of points out, well, you saw him in the picture first. And that, that does bear out. She sees the picture first. Then she sees this face at the window, but it is after, like you just point out, that headlock where he's screaming things that seem a little bit more intense than a kid playing a game. You know, it's kind of out of left field. I was going to say to Jackson, what did you think of the interpretation of the kids or the 
way that they were acting in the film? Do you think it was accurate? Do you think it was a good job on them or do you think that they were unrealistic as children yeah i don't know because it's i'm assuming it was set in either the the late 19th century or the early 20th century and i'm not sure how kids acted back then but i know sure as heck that i would not be talking like that when i'm 10 and 7 or whatever flora is but they talk like adults which is really creepy i remember writing in my notes while i was watching it I wrote, is Miles the original Damien? There's something oddly creepy about him. And then I wrote, it's almost as if there's a 40-year-old man trapped in a 10-year-old's body. And then later I put, update. And now I see why. And I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. But um, I did think they acted a little like oddly mature for their age. Like how they call this 40-year-old woman, my dear. And like they're talking to her like she's some like their peer. It's an odd, uh, it's an odd like relationship between them. And I really do see how uh, Miss Getting she could she could interpret that as uh, they're possessed. However, I became much less empathetic towards Miss Giddens as the story went on. Uh, I think it, the breaking point for me is when she's uh, at that little um, like pagoda there near the water. Yeah, and she starts she she's trying to get uh, Flora to see. Uh, Jessel's ghost across the water and she's shaking the girl and screaming at her in her face and I was like oh my gosh she's going way too far and then later what she does to Miles it's just she's she loses my empathy at, at a certain point and again like you guys were saying earlier I don't think that you could get away with that if she was this this, this young lady who uh, this I find it really strange that she's 40 years old. This is her first job. Uh, she she's been living in the small house with her family, uh, and she is she's so quick to fall into the supernatural suspicion. I think that does plant a seed of doubt as to whether she's all you know right in the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it, I think one of the other things that'd be interesting to discuss is those kids. You're right, Jackson. It's almost hard to get a handle. It's like their acting is incredible. But the, one of the things that makes this sets them apart is the fact that they this isn't a movie where these kids are accidentally acting like they're older. They're acting this way purposefully. This is part of the performance. With everything that's gone on, there's plenty of messed up. These kids were messed up before she got there, certainly. I mean, we see that Miles is sent home because of, ultimately, it's because he was cursing and, and saying all kinds of things that a child of that age shouldn't be saying at the, at the boarding school. And he's acting out in a way that's... So it's clear that this these two people that, that have cast a long shadow on these children and then have affected them. And so these kids have some deep-seated issues already. There's a, there's a bad situation going on before she even shows up, you know, ghosts or no ghosts. I was going to say, the one thing I did research on Jack Clayton is Clayton's dad apparently had some kind of job where he was nomadic, traveled a lot, wasn't home a lot. Mm-hmm. So he, he was kind of introduced as a, a, a – or he lived the life of – a kid with adults around him and he was kind of had the, the strong mom figure who had to be the one to lead him because dad wasn't around and he also only spent one term of his life in school so th- is it a, almost autobiographical the element of the kids with Clayton so that's why he was more rigid in how they're going to be portrayed yeah because I have seen you know many times over the years Kids who don't have a lot of interaction with other children, they're around adults most of the time. 
they tend to imitate those adults. So th- that throws a further question into how you know reliable Deborah Kerr is, um, because is it are they acting that way simply because they've been around adults all the time? So is Miles, you know, using all this language at school that they don't think a little boy should use because he's just following Quint around all the time? And and she's projecting, or are they really possessed? And she would have never had that experience. Like she's she obviously can't, can't even contemplate a child speaking or acting the way that they do because of her limited experiences. Right. And I just to give you an example, uh, my my brother worked on a sitcom um, that only lasted one season on NBC, and one of the little kids on the sitcom I remember going to the set. And there's this little kid. He's probably eight years old, if I remember. And I walked in and he's reciting Andrew Dice Clay routines. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. exactly. And so, and, but, but did he realize that that's probably not appropriate for an eight year old? He just thought it was natural to do because he wanted to be like him. He, I couldn't tell. I mean, but he just, he was just going off on it and, and, and people were laughing and all this other kind of stuff. And I found it disturbing. I'm like, what, you know, what in the world is going on here? But he was just, you know, he's a professional actor at eight years old and he'd obviously been exposed to it. And, and this does happen. You know, I've met kids like this. And so, like I said, I think that throws further question into, and I will say that, I mean, Freud did at this time, he had written about delusion as a byproduct of hysteria. Um, and so maybe James picked up on some of that, but it's, I don't know, it's interesting. It's really interesting. And my memory too, uh, Matt, with the book was that James's story did revolve a lot more around, a, it was a classic ghost story with just enough um deniability you know what i mean that i think that a lot of the emphasis was still on telling a ghost story but it was a lot of let's leave a couple of things to your imagination and let you think like maybe the ghosts aren't exactly there but i i've my memory of it is is that a lot of what sets this apart uh is that freud element that probably capote is bringing i don't i think a lot of that is brought in and ushered in to this film specifically. And that might be why this one does work a little bit better because there's actually a structure to why, what are the facts here that might make it that this person is embellishing all of this in their mind. And so it doesn't leave it at, oh, she could be making it up, but there's the why would she make it up and how would she make it up. And I think that's maybe what adds that extra level of interest to the the downtime in this film. You know, you're always watching cars, cars sort of work through what's going on in in her head and what what she needs to do about it and which leads me to a question i want to ask everybody here and let's let everybody go around we've talked so much about how this movie does sort of posit that maybe there are no ghosts but i don't think that lessens the the terror or the dread going into the movie how do you how did you feel the ghost sequences worked in this movie matt you want to start yeah i thought they worked very well and i think um that is part and parcel, or actually a lot of it too, um, Freddie Francis. Um, Freddie Francis, if I remember correctly, in order to kind of get the effect he wanted, he would pl- he would brush the glass, he would smoke the glass, he would you know he would do all these things to try and 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 make it look as creepy as he possibly could. I mean, uh, Francis seemed to really understand that at the end of the day, if the ghosts don't look 
threatening. If if it's not chilling, it's not going to work. The movie's just not going to work. Yeah, I agree. And he gives them plenty of time on screen. You know, it isn't when that face appears in the window, we get to see it advance and then draw back into the shadows. Nowadays, it would be a super quick and maybe even CGI shot, you know, and then it's gone again. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say with uh, Freddie Francis, I mean, you can see his history with an uh, experience with Hammer. And in the way that it's shot, like he would—he was part of some of those Frankenstein films and Day of the Triffids and that kind of thing. And the way that, like, when they go up the staircases and the wide-angle shots—I mean, that's hammered to a T. Um, and I heard an interesting story about the cinemascope and around the edges that they're black. Apparently, he had these older ladies who created these uh, frames that we put on his camera so that it would create that. You know, it's like it's out of focus or it looks like it's the film quality isn't good enough to get the edges. But it was done purposefully by these, I don't know, ladies in their 70s or 80s who have created these little socks around it to make it look dark. So the, the guy knew how to create atmosphere for a film. Absolutely. And even as a director. And so and I don't I don't know if you know this, Jackson, you probably do. But he directed one of Jackson's favorite Hammer films. You know, because he wasn't just a cinematographer, he directed a lot of Hammer films. He directed Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. Yes, one of my absolute favorites. I think that's my favorite of the Dracula series, and I'm not surprised, honestly. It's a gorgeous movie. Yeah, and a lot of his stuff looks great. And there's some there's some cool stuff on the uh, Criterion copy of The Innocents that has they have a little interviews and snippets of talking with Francis and, and him going over basically what you had just talked about. Uh, Matt, all these little, very technical things that he did to create a otherworldly feel. And I think that's what uh, happens through that entire film, that structurally it just has a, a feeling of otherworldliness, even though most of the time there's mundane things going on. And in the cinemascope, for what is still a kind of cloistered and closed-in story, it just it's a fascinating kind of... Uh, approach that it almost feels organic you're not necessarily looking at those images and thinking about how exactly did they do that jackson what do you think about the ghost sequences i thought they were legitimately scary uh the the first one that really chilled me and and we do get a first glance at a ghost whenever miss giddens is playing hide and seek with with the the kids and she's walking through these dark passages and she sees this lady in a, in a dark dress walk by and I struggled with how that fit into the story because she has no reason to suspect that um, Jessel died in a suspicious way. So why is she seeing the ghost of her if it is all uh, just a delusion? And then I thought of one of two things. First of all, that could have been Anna, right? We only see Anna, who's another worker at the house, one other time in the movie. But she is part of the cast, and she's mentioned quite often. So it, it's weird to me that we only really see her face once. So I was thinking that maybe that's just Anna, and that, that kind of fueled her uh, her mental state in that, that scene. Or, number two, she heard that, that Jessel died, and she's in this dark passage, and her mind is just going crazy, and she just imagines that. But the, the second two ghost appearances, those of Clint and of uh, Miss Jessel, 
were very scary. I think the second was creepier, though. When Quint appears and you see him appear up into the window, my favorite part is when he recedes. You can still see the light from his eyes after his face is faded into shadow. So you just get this glowing pair of dots like eyes in the darkness before the shot cuts away, which I thought was really creepy. But the most effective scene of, of ghost scares for me is when they're out by the water and uh, Flora is singing that song and Miss Giddens is asking her about it. She's being elusive. And then she looks across the water. She hears another voice and she looks across the water and there's this lady in black and her face is kind of hidden in shadow. And she's singing from the other side of the pond. That freaked me out. I mean, the song is creepy as is with a little girl singing it. Uh, but then you have this other voice joining in, this figure in black across the pond. It really disturbed me. And I was watching this in broad daylight. So that And it, the scene is set in broad daylight. So I think that really shows how talented the cast and crew is to deliver something so freaky that really isn't that complex, nor should it be that scary. But with the context and with the music and everything about that scene, it's just so terrifying. Part of it is just the you know, bluntness of it. She's just standing out there in those reeds, and there she is. She doesn't materialize. It's not small. Smoke doesn't come up and form into a woman. It's just there. And what's interesting is the first shot or two when you see Jessup's ghost, it looks, you can see her clearly as a person. But some of those farther away shots, it's very indistinct. Even, even the way she's crouched over the piano from a distance looks almost unreal, almost like it's not a person, but like a dummy. You know, there are images that look not quite right and then there'll be images, okay, that's clearly a person. So I thought that was interesting, too, an almost dehumanizing element when you see them from afar. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I would say, I love the ghost sequences. I almost wish that there was a bit more. Uh, I wish they could have used maybe some shadowy, dark ghosts, like how effective they were towards the end it, looking in off the glass. I wish they would have done that one or two more times now. Who knows in the editing process if that was done or not, or maybe it just wasn't done in the book. I don't know. Um, I would have. I, I can see where people are saying, "Well, it's not scary enough. Why aren't there more ghosts?" You know. Uh, the other interesting part I, I did find out in this research is Peter Wingard is has to go meet up with uh, uh, Clark before they start, and uh, he's, uh, the director says. You know, I've chose you as the Peter Quint, but there are two other actors that have vied for this that I've turned away. So he goes, oh, okay, whatever. Who is it? Well, Sir Alec Guinness wanted the role, and Cary Grant wanted the role. Wow. That's the, right. I read that. Yeah. That's and, and, and the director said, uh, but I thought you could bring something to this. And it's interesting. Cary Grant would be interested. There's, uh, if you add up all the the time that Wingard is on screen, it's a minute and a half. <laughs> but he had to put him under contract for nine months so that he could use him for that minute and a half. Wow, it's an effective minute and a half. <laughs> it is, and he's a. I, I got to throw this in here because it's one of my uh, favorite bad movies of all time. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen 1980s Flash Gordon. Oh, yeah. Oh, Flash. Boy. Yeah, man. I love yeah. it. I have it on DVD. I, I, I like the oh. soundtrack. Give me the music. Oh, it's it's such a gloriously bad movie. I saw it with my dad when I was eight <laughs> years old in the theater. Um, he's Clytus. He's General Clytus. Mm -hmm. He is. He is. <laughs> You're right. 
Something oh. I gotta say about Flash Gordon, uh, and I don't get to talk about sci-fi movies often, but this is Phantom Galaxy, so I feel very at home. Well, let me stop you two for one second, Jackson, because now that that's come up, we're gonna have you guys back on to talk Flash Gordon if you want. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that'd be amazing. So, so you can say whatever you want, but hold some back, because we're gonna have you on. I just That's happening. <laughs> You know what? I'll keep it. I'll sit on it, and and uh, and we'll we'll get back to it later. I was gonna say the other thing I found out is Meg Jenkins in 1974, so 13 years later, did a TV uh, movie called The Turn of the Screw. Oh so wow! I don't even know if she did the exact same role, or I don't know. Maybe she was that other maid that doesn't get much. I don't know. But when I went under her IMDb, she has done the same thing 13 years later. I mean, in this film, I thought she was I I thought the entire cast was. But for what little she's given, you can see like little nuanced hesitation when she's speaking, um, which I think adds to the atmosphere. And I, I thought she was great in it. Yeah, I just realized when I was talking about the director, I called him Clark. I obviously mean Clayton. It's like, who's yeah. Clark? I'm, I was thinking of Arthur I was thinking C. Bob Clark. Clark. <laughs> the Black Christmas, I don't know. Or um, knowing Bill, he's th- he's thinking of uh, the Griswolds. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was going to say, am I the only one that got freaked by a boy sleeping with a bird with a broken neck? Yeah, is oh, messed up. Yeah, that is just oh. like he's petting this thing, and he's oh, I gotta get you know, and it's like it's obviously dead. What, what the hell are you doing, you know? Yeah. That as creepy as that is, it's completely overshadowed by that really long sustained kiss that happens like yeah. 40 seconds later. Oh, Let's man. talk about that because I wanted to bring that up because... I was say, how far did we want to dig into this? I don't know, but it's there in the movie and it is... The thing that's notable about it is that she doesn't pull back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, speaking of, we were speaking earlier of Jack Clayton and his um, relationship with studio executives. He fought hard for that because they wanted that out. They thought that was just going to repel people. And they and he, he, you know, he pounded the table to keep it in, I guess, as part of the productive uh, as part of the creative process. right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Very important. And, you know, I will say this to his credit, that that scene, I think, excuse me, is pivotal in the in the way that this movie comes off as creepy. And I think, like Jackson, you had mentioned, between this scene and the pagoda scene, this is where you're not on her side, really, anymore at all. She's not a victim at this point. Uh, and not that she reciprocates, but you see the way she's reacting to that. And it, it, I mean, it comes off as icky as it should in the context of the story, but you realize there's a little boy who needs some serious help here, and there's a woman who's not, he's the, entirely the wrong person to be entrusted to right now. And so I think that you could see the storm coming in that moment more than any other. Yeah, and that, that scene is actually repeated, kind of called back to later on, in the last shot of the movie, uh, kind of called back to. And at that point, I was totally like, what are you doing, Miss Giddens? Uh, it, this is not the only time that they kiss, I'll just say that much. <laughs> yeah, that was really strange, because I had forgotten about that, the very end shot. I'm like, well, this is going to be interesting when everybody shows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and you have to wonder if the censor board had some kind of, you know, is this in 1961? There's a lot of double entendres in this film, and this is one where you go, you know, if you think about it the wrong way, this could be looked, frowned upon by the, uh, uh, you know, the religious right or certain segments of society thinking this shouldn't be seen. 
You'd be surprised what you could get away with. I I worked for two guys who made their kind of mark in the in the 50s and 60s when I worked in Hollywood. Two songwriters. And one of the songs they wrote was for Elvis. It's called Santa Claus is Coming Over Tonight. And it's clearly a guy saying, I'm your Santa, baby, and I'm coming over. And there is a line in that song. Oh, and Santa's coming down your chimney tonight. Oh. And that <laughs> made it by. <laughs> he wrote that line. Jerry Lieber wrote that line. And Mike Stoller wrote the music. He goes, you're never going to get that through. And he goes, he goes, if they say anything, I'll call them perverts. <laughs> right because because you know how elvis is gonna sing that line i mean come on yeah, exactly <laughs> if, it didn't, if it wasn't salacious before it will be after exactly um. it was, he got it through and so hey man they got it through in 61 somehow yeah, they yeah. Did. And I, you know there is an intelligence to the way that this movie handles those elements particularly the elements involving the quinn and jessup relationship because there's some there's some implications that it was almost masochistic you know in in ways and and just things that are said like particularly when the housekeeper's describing it but you know the way they say it is in such a way that it is really designed to 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 slide right over anyone's head who isn't tuned into this you know when she says they did things in daylit rooms that were meant for darkened woods that's that says everything right there without them saying you know they were boinking in every room of the house like you know that's the only line that references that and she says it's like she wanted the weight of his hand and you're like wow that says a whole lot oh yeah yeah because they said that's when um, martin what's his name martin uh, john mortimer he was brought in to get the script up to more 19th century victorian sounding and he made sure he said the bedrooms were known as dark woods because that meant something to the victorians that sure as heck didn't to today there's a Go part ahead. in that scene with with the housekeeper, and she says that after he would flap her, she would crawl acor- across the floor back to him. And I was like, "Is this dirty dancing? What is she talking about?" It is Sounds very like... explicit. Yeah, if you if you look yeah. into it, I was thinking more like nine and a half weeks. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yes, Kim Basinger, nine and a half weeks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who? Uh, uh, I was gonna say who Jackson might not have had the pleasure of watching yet. Not yet. I don't think that's, that's high up on my watch list. <laughs> yeah, you don't put that on your, like, yeah, that's not yeah. underrated. When I was 16, it sure as hell was. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Matt, you may have seen this movie, but I had not really become aware of it. I realized I'd heard of it before, but I hadn't really hit my radar. And rewatching this, it made me think maybe I should see this. It, have you seen The Nightcomers with uh, Marlon Brando? I, I have heard of it. I have never seen it. I know that if I, if memory serves, wasn't Michael Winner who directed? Michael Winner Winner's the director, and it deals specifically with the. It would be the prequel to Turn of a Screw. It's about he play uh, Brando is Peter Quinn and or Peter uh, Quinn, and he. It's about his relationship and how he corrupts you know Jessel and the children basically. And so I don't know. I'm curious to see the movie. I'm I'm not sure what to expect from it or how far it will go. But I think that's. You know, that's one of those things where that backstory isn't something I'm necessarily, like, chomping at the bit to see portrayed. But I think it might be interesting, particularly knowing that Michael Winter directed it. I, I, I might try to put it on my radar. Maybe we'll watch it. Uh, maybe we'll review it for the show sometime. But I'm just curious if anyone had seen it. The one the thing one I thing did I read about it is in the original, the original script, script, there were flashbacks and there were things that would fill in the gaps about Jessel and the backstory. And... Capote said, cut them right out. 
We want the ghost to be vague, ambiguous. It adds to the creepiness. We don't want to know. So they're purposefully not giving it to you because they they think that adds to the atmosphere and the unknowingness and the unsettlingness of the story. Well, wow. Yeah, I just I've, looked up The Nightcomers because I, I'd heard of it. I knew it was a Brando movie. I know that kind of stuff. And Miss Jessel is played by Stephanie Beecham. Oh, I didn't realize that either. Yeah, and Stephanie Beecham, of course, was in a lot of Hammer films, a lot of, you know, those kind of period pieces, 60s and 70s. But she was also the lead on that sitcom I was talking about. Oh, Sister really? <laughs> <laughs> I, met, I met her uh, several times. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. Um, her assistant followed her around like a foot behind her all the time. But when the sitcom was canceled, and I had already had a crush on her because I had seen her in Hammer films um, on Saturday afternoons growing up. And here I was, she was the lead in this sitcom that my brother was doing the music for. And I never said a word to her until the uh, show was canceled. And I walked up to her and I said, uh, Miss Beecham, and she turned around and said, yes, because I've seen you around. You're such as I said, yes, yes, yes. I said, I'm very sorry. She said, oh, that's all right. These things happen, blah, 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 blah. And her wonderful British accent. And I took her hand and I kissed the top of her hand and she looked at me and she said oh a gentleman <laughs> i was 17 and i was in heaven well played <laughs> thank well you played. thank you thank you thank you yeah what something else i saw in the, doing research is during the film there are many homages uh to other films within it and uh, because clayton obviously a big movie buff cinephile there's one scene where they're looking at the backdrop of i think it's the the front, the back of the house, and it's an homage to uh, Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. A- a- and then there's another one where they're going up the stairwell, where Giddens goes up the stairwell to go to the top of the bill, and that's Vertigo. Vertigo, yeah, that's right there. And and even when you take that link over to Hitchcock, uh, if you look, uh, if at, you look the at the cover, the cover of the, of poster, the poster, the poster, the poster of the film. Of the film her being portrayed, you know, if, if you glimpse the right way, it's kind of like uh, Janet Lee. In Psycho? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very much like it. Yeah, he, and that's impressive um, because people don't realize after Vertigo had its initial run, Hitchcock actually yanked it from public view for decades. Yeah. And oh, so, I mean, you couldn't even see it for a long time unless you owned a print. Yeah, because there w- it wouldn't have been on the, you know, the NBC movie of the week or anything like that. No, it was, I think it was, and uh, maybe Nathan, maybe you know, I think it was the early 80s. When the Hitchcock was, family started to roll them out. Yeah, and I think yeah, because at that point I I want to say, and I think you're right, Matt, that it was coming with the advent of home video. Right at that point, it became suddenly there was money to be made, and right. that's when Vertigo resurfaced, if you will. Yeah, which means in all probability, Bill, back to your point, Clayton's doing that from memory. Yeah, as but. And my guess is he's probably seen it seven times just going to the theater or something. Probably did, yeah. And you wonder, too, in situations like that where the movie's out of print or it's not, you know, we see, because we have such access immediately to all of these films and stuff, and, and, and Jackson, you have so much of it that when you go to make movies, it's homage on purpose, but you wonder how much some of this with someone who saw a movie once and an image stuck in their head, how much of some of what we, we credit Clayton them with doing, was it maybe just um, instinctual, you know what I mean? I saw this, I remembered it, and he may not even be aware that he's copying Vertigo because maybe he only saw Vertigo once or twice, you know? 
Oh yeah, definitely. Like, Subcon- subconscious filmmaking is a huge thing uh, with with this generation of filmmakers because they'll see stuff on TV or clips on YouTube and they won't think about it for years. And then they go to make a movie and it turns out surprisingly like that thing. And they're like, where did, where have I seen that? Then when someone interviews you, you say, yep, did it on purpose. Yeah, exactly. You're like, it was a clever homage. I meant it from the very beginning. Uh, but for really, you were just like, this seems familiar. Let me ask a couple people. Uh, yeah, and I, I feel like that's definitely going to be my experience. When I start making movies, I feel like people are going to be like, wow, that is a very clever uh, reference to blah, blah, whatever, 30 filmmaker. And I'll be like... Oh, yeah, I think I saw that on Joe Bob once. So <laughs> I was going to say, because on Land of the Creeps, we recently recorded one about the devil. And it's amazing for us, for a while there how every devil was this, you know, this dark yet dapper devil, like Angel Heart. And then there was Devil's Advocates. And then there was Constantine. And the, people con- subconsciously have this vision of something without saying, I'm going to copy X. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, that played into this, no doubt. Well, before we do the kind of final rating thing, I wanted to ask about one more element. The music and the sound design of the film. Uh, obviously, it's very effective, but I wanted any kind of things that stood out to you. Jackson, did you want to start? Yeah. Uh, the thing that was most obvious to me that I think most people will pick up on is that motif, that that song, that little nur- – it's not quite a nursery rhyme, but that little song that, that Flora likes to sing uh, that's in the music box. That is repeated so many times that by the end of the movie, you know every note that's in your head. Like it, It's almost this movie's like uh, motif, but um, – a lot of what comes with the effectiveness of the sound design is the fading of sounds into other sounds to like create a new context. I feel like a lot of the time the context of the sound is very different, therefore you get a different feeling for it. And and I, that a lot that song is the best example of it that I can think of. Depending on the context of the scene, it can either be cute or it can be really really creepy. Um, and another thing that that really stood out to me with sound design is the scene where Miss Giddens is is walking around the dark manor at night, and she's hearing the voices of the ghosts in her head, and they're talking over each other and overlapping, and it's just like this wave of sound, of echoey sound, and it's it's a bit overwhelming. And that's really cool for a 60s movie that they were ad- able to add that many layers of sound and to make this big orchestra of voices in that scene until it builds to a point where it's just silence. And that is really effective. So definitely very well designed from a sound perspective. I did notice the score a couple of times, uh, though I will say I think it's overshadowed by the film's visual elements and the acting. Uh, but there were a few really cool and unconventional things for the 60s. Like I heard some synth- some synthesizers and like some, some really weird stuff that you don't hear. It's pretty artsy. Um, but again, the visuals, I think, overshadow the audio. Yeah, I, de- I, I definitely agree. And I think the fading is something that happens – with everything, you know, the images fade in and out, the sounds fade in and out, the personalities of the characters kind of come in and out, and it's just, that creates that ephemeral feel. Every level of the movie is constantly merging in a way, and I read a little clip that said something that Clayton was saying, we kind of want the audience to always sort of not know exactly where they are or what they're doing, and uh, that seems to come through. Matt, what do you think about the uh, sound and or music? I thought it was fantastic. I, I really thought we brought up the opening before, um, I can't remember another movie before this where you had an audio clip like that, as creepy as it was and as strange as it was, come up even before the you know company logo. Um, I don't know how he got away with it, to be honest, because he'd only had, I think, one one 
feature under his belt at that point. And it was, you know, I think it was Room at the Top, which it was very well received. Um, but I, you know, somehow he talked, you know, the studio into it. And then it just continues. I think it's a brilliant use of audio all the way through. Bill, how about you? I, uh, I really liked it. And I thought the fact that the, I don't know if Matt can add any of this to the religious end of it, but the film opens with what looks like praying hands. And then the film ends with what looks like praying hands to that same song that is nowhere near religious. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. And I think that, you know, you can interpret that and maybe I'm wrong, but I think you can interpret that as duality, right? I mean, um, I tell my congregation all the time, just because you come to church and, you know, you put money in the in the bucket and you, you know, and you do all you avoid the big things. You don't murder and you don't, you know, blah, 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 blah. Doesn't mean there's not a darkness within you. And, you know, yeah, there's definitely something to sexual repression and what it does. I mean, and people get freaked out, but in all likelihood. When Mary married uh, Joseph after she had Jesus, she was probably 13 years old. And Joseph was probably 16. And we look at that as kind of weird, but the ancient Jews looked at that as go, you know what? When their hormones kick in, we should probably go ahead and get them married so they can just go nuts. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't have this. (laughs) So you don't have this. I was going to say the last thing I wanted to bring up and then we go around was – the, the studio people really did not know how to market this film. No, that much is obvious. Because if you look at some of the early trailers and the poster work, you know, horror at that time was either schlocky Vincent Price or silly comedy Abbott and Costello kind of stuff. So they kind of put together a, a trailer that looked like it was, you know, a schlocky hammer kind of thing or a, a Herschel Gordon Lewis kind of thing. But it is far from it. And the uh, and the irony of it is that uh, the film critique, the serious, you know, bow tie kind of guys thought it was too schlocky and the hammer guys thought there wasn't enough boobs and blood. So it kind of fit that happy medium of it was kind of for an adult audience. But the target audience at that age was at that time was 14 to 17 year olds. And speaking of which, one of those teenagers who happened to love this movie, this is Joe Dante's favorite horror movie. Yeah, there's a there's a, a YouTube series of clips of Dante's called Trailers from Hell. Yes, great and, and stuff. Yeah, and he did one on this, and he couldn't gush enough about. It. He knew the ins and outs of this movie like you couldn't believe. Oh, Joe Dante is a walking film encyclopedia. He really is. Uh, but also, this is one of Guillermo del Toro's favorite films. This is one of Martin Scorsese's favorite horror films. I can believe it. And all that kind of does make sense. It's it's probably one, it's definitely in my top five horror films. It's probably my top favorite. We've discussed whether or not it's supernatural, but I think it is my favorite uh, supernatural horror film. And a lot of it is down to how there are all these different layers, and it lingers in your mind. Those images linger in your mind. Those ideas linger in your mind. And you, it, it's still happening when the movie ends. I always kind of think that makes a movie more unsettling it's not wrapped up in a bow things are still happening there is fallout from this that is still going on when that screen goes dark for the last time and i i always wonder i almost wondered if spielberg was a fan of this film he probably was but the fact that quint was named quint yeah and then you look at the characteristics of how they say peter quint acted and then the way that quint (laughs) in the boat acted Mm, do, 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 do. You know, like it's it's not exactly brain science to say that there's a link there. 
You know, it's been too long since I've read the the novel. I've, I can't remember if in Jaws it's also Quint in the in the novel because it's just been too long since I've since I've read it. But you're you're right, Bill. I, yeah, I do think there are shades of that. Of course, you know, Jaws is another one of those films. Not to go too far off topic, that had so many hands in the screenplay. You know, you've got Shaw doing stuff, you've got Milius doing stuff, you've got Carl Gottlieb doing stuff, you've got Spielberg doing stuff. That's another one of those movies that kind of uh, happily came together. But yeah, I'd be shocked if Spielberg's not a fan of this film. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And you can see a lot of those elements play out in different in different things that he's worked on. And if you look at one of his very early movies when he was still doing TV work, Duel is the movie that gets a lot of um, mm-hmm. play, obviously, and it had a theatrical release. But there's another movie that, if you guys haven't seen it, it's on YouTube, I believe. It's called Something Evil, and it, and yep, it yep. he yeah. directed it yep. right after. There's a lot of elements of – there's a lot in common that this movie has that The Innocence has with that movie. And if I if I recall, there's a greenhouse scene in both of the films. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting movie actually, because you can see the they get into that constant conversation about with involving Toby Hooper and Spielberg and who really directed Poltergeist, and uh, you know, without getting into that conversation too much, you can see a lot of of Poltergeist in Something Evil, which was done uh, a year or two after Duel. And that was uh, starring was it Darren McGavin from Kolchak? Yeah, Darren McGavin. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. It's been a while, but I have seen it. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But yeah, yeah, to come around, sir. Yeah, Bill, I agree. I, I think Spielberg obviously saw this, and 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 you know, it wouldn't surprise me because Robert Shaw, you know, um, loved both movie and theaters. I think and theater. I think that Shaw probably saw the play The Innocence too, because if I remember correctly, it was it was a fairly popular play. And if you take it to the next level, they say Quint died. In the, in the innocence by hitting his head after a drunkard. Well, isn't that something that Shaw would have done? Well, <laughs> Shaw that's, played, that's, quit, that's yeah. almost how Shaw quit, did absolutely. die. So, <laughs> Yeah, Shaw was one of my favorite, just real quick, one of my favorite stories from Jaws was Spielberg hired two guys to look after Shaw and his drinking. And they said, just keep him under control. Just make sure he gets to set on time, all that other kind of stuff. And so they go into his trailer at noon. He's just waking up. He pours himself a martini for breakfast. <laughs> He's too big and strong for the other two guys to handle. They start drinking with him. They think, ah, come on. Because these guys are in their 20s. You know, Shaw's an older guy. They're thinking, okay, we'll just we'll drink with him and we'll drain his bottle, all that kind of stuff. Shaw stumbles onto set. Those two guys are passed out in his trailer. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stories that involve guys like Peter O'Toole and, and, and people like that, that like they were given handlers and the handlers are laying on the ground, you know, with alcohol poisoning. And these guys are heading into work. <laughs> we just did uh, Jackson and I just did a mini review for retro movie geeks, uh, spooky flicks fest on curse of the werewolf. Oliver Reed on the day he died, uh, had a heart attack first of all, beat six sailors in an arm wrestling competition. And he was on break from filming Gladiator. His bar bill when he was taken to the hospital was $579. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and this is, 20, this is 20 years ago. This is 20 yeah. years ago. And his bar bill was $579. Yeah, I heard that story. And they, 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 nobody has ever actually set straight exactly what happened. <laughs> well, you figure all the special effects they needed to be able to have the movie finish with Oliver Reed still in it 
was probably just offset by the bar bill they didn't have to pay for the rest of the film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I told we said in our review that's uh, coming out this week on Retro Movie Geek, so it's not a spoiler. I said, you know, I, I, I told um, I told Jackson, I said, well, you know, with an American werewolf in London, we learned that a werewolf doesn't just sit in bed or chair and calmly transform. We learned from Monster Squad that the Wolfman has nards. We learn from the curse of the werewolf what a werewolf looks like after a six martini lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably it's probably not makeup. It's just he hasn't shaved. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But I, I, I would love to end this. Is a, a story I heard about the innocents. And they said, while at dinner with his wife, Clayton had a note. They're at an Italian restaurant. Clayton had a note passed to him in the restaurant was Francois Tufo, uh, who was there. And he passed up a note and he said, it was the, the Innocents were the best British film since Hitchcock's came to America, which would have been The Lady Vanishes. And I think that's about as apropos as you can get with this film. Absolutely. It's a brilliant film. I agree. Okay, so final ratings and any final thoughts that you guys have. Uh, Matt, did you want to start? I, I just think that I understand that a lot of horror fans do not like a slow burn. They don't like psychological horror. Um, I disagree. If you have the patience for that, if you like psychological horror, if you can tolerate a slow burn um, and you've never seen The Innocence, you need to go and look it up as soon as possible. I think it's incredibly influential. I think it's filmed beautifully. I think it's Deborah Kerr, I, and she said this herself, I think it's her best performance. I think the screenplay, despite the fact that there were so many hands in it, is brilliant. I just think a master class in filmmaking. And final rating, if you're doing out of 10? It's 10 out of 10. Cool. Jackson? Yeah, uh, I I usually like a slow burn as well. Even though I'm I'm a kid with a with a short attention span, so it's <laughs> kind of hard for me to sit still for for that long. And this movie isn't that long. It's a hundred minutes, and uh, but but it definitely does start out slow. We don't see a lot of the really creepy parts until like 45 minutes in, getting into that that range, the second act. But I love this movie. I love the atmosphere and the writing. I think the acting is amazing across the board. I find it hilarious that we have this great actor in Michael Redgrave, and we only get him on screen for five minutes. If, if that, if that. Yeah, if that. I Maybe maybe four, three and a half, you know, whatever. He's just in that first scene. Uh, but the thing is, we don't really need him. I forgot he existed, and I didn't miss him because that's funny. Uh, I, I love him in Dead of Night and The Lady Vanishes, but, but Deborah Kerr and the two child actors really carry this movie, I think. And uh, great long takes, gorgeous black and white cinematography. I'm giving it a 9.5 out of 10, and that's my first watch ever. I think I'll grow to appreciate it more after I digest the stuff that I've received in this podcast and watch it again because this was my first watch. And I do want to get the physical media uh, because I saw it on YouTube, and it didn't have any commentaries. It didn't have – it was only in 720p. Uh, I definitely want to get it on physical media so I can see it in its full quality with all the extra features. But for now, I'm calling it a 9.5 out of 10. I definitely consider this one of the best movies of the 60s, up there with Rosemary's Baby and Psycho and Black Sunday. And I'd recommend it. Awesome. Bill? Uh, I really enjoyed this film. It's nice seeing something again. It's like seeing that old friend you haven't seen for 15 years from university, but you're getting back together. It's kind of like that warm, soft blanket. I like... Now, I was just like Matt, I would say that if you're not into slow burn, uh, if you want action every four minutes, if you want to see blood, if you want to see a killing, 
this is I can see some people giving this a five or six and just passing it on. But if you want to see a film that's masterfully put together, if you want to see one that plays to your senses, to your ability to follow a story, that doesn't spoon feed you everything. It leaves a lot of ambiguity on purpose because they want you to come up with your own decisions and your own conclusions. This is a, a fantastic film for that. Now, I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10 and people are going to be aghast. It's because I'm generally not huge on supernatural films. Because I find that they all fall into the same tropes and they all have the same schlocky stuff. This one sets it apart. And this, for years, for me, would be the best supernatural film. I always put it and the Changeling up in the top of my supernatural film list. So I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. It's a buy. And really, if you're a cinephile, if you're a lover of acting, if you're a lover of the process, get the stories behind the film because they're just as fascinating as the film itself. Yeah, can I just say, I, I'm usually not a big fan of supernatural movies with ghosts either, because I feel like ghosts don't, the rules aren't really established, like that of a vampire, so they can kind of just do whatever the filmmakers need them to do to get to scare, but this is probably the quintessential ghost movie, this is the best thing that you can, you can this is way better than what you're going to get with a modern jump scare filled thing. And so with me, it yeah, it's definitely a, a 10 out of 10 for me, and to the thing, if people don't like slow burn horror or psychological horror, then I'd say change your perspective <laughs> and, and check some of it <laughs> Amen. out. Amen. Yes. Because you are really reducing the amount of and the quality of horror films that you can enjoy. One of the things I love is the ability to watch The Innocents and watch Killer Clowns from Outer Space and watch Friday the 13th and all of these other films and to enjoy them across the spectrum. And I think... The Innocence, I think if you go to it with the expectation of, hey, I, I'm, I'm going to let this movie work on me, I think it will work uh, because of how effective it is. And Carr's performance is awesome here. Another really good movie, it's not a horror film, although it does start to develop elements that feel that way, is Black Narcissus from earlier in the 40s. And it's another movie of a, of a person in a religious setting and cloistered and kind of going a little crazy. And she does that really well. But here, I just... Every facet, as you guys have mentioned, it just works. And it works to create this picture, this ghost story that resonates in your mind in a way that I, you know, as much as I have fun with some of these these uh, movies that are all sort of sound and fury when it comes to supernatural elements. Uh, I love Poltergeist and, you know, I enjoyed a few of the Conjuring movies. The, there's something that just remains and retains here that isn't necessarily in those films. And I strongly recommend this one. And if, you, if you've seen The Turning, it was not a very good movie. Don't think that you won't be interested in that story just because you saw it in, in that format. Definitely check this one out. And, uh, yeah, I can't recommend it uh, enough. And I can't recommend The Criterion enough either. The Criterion, Jackson, when you get your hands on that, you'll really like it. It's got a lot of – it's got some awesome commentary on it from film historians. It's got a lot of uh, – of, of little uh, making of pieces with, with Francis and with other people. And there's just a lot of cool stuff there. It, the great thing about Criterion is they always find people who love this, love these films to talk about them and to work, uh, to work on them. So thanks so much for joining me. I, this is again, one of my favorite movies. Anyone's listening to this, you can check it out. And I will say the copy on YouTube, even though it doesn't have cri doesn't have commentary and stuff, it's still a very crisp, clear copy. It's not a muddy kind of copy that you would normally find other places. So there is that. But um, Matt and Jackson, you guys have any final thoughts or final things you want to say um, as we wrap this up? 
No, it's just been uh, it's been a real pleasure. Um, I think this is just uh, an incredible movie. I agree with Jackson. I think this is one of the best horror movies of the 1960s uh, with Psycho and Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Living Dead. Definitely think everybody should check it out, especially if because we have a lot of uh, in our community, wider community, a lot of film nerds. This is just you can go almost frame by frame in this movie and learn so much about cinematography and lighting and acting and so forth. It's just everybody needs to check out, even if because you're right, Bill, a lot of people, you know, who aren't into slow burns. But just check this out as a technical masterpiece, if nothing else. And I wanted to say that if anybody doesn't like a slow burn, I'm going to have you sit down and watch Hagazusa. Yes. And then watch this. And you're going to go, boy, this went by real quick. Yeah, exactly. Get some Tarkovsky in there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And Jackson, you have any anything else? Any final thoughts? Just I'm so thankful for the opportunity to get to talk about movies with people who love movies. This this movie it 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 deserves it deserves discussion i think it doesn't deserve to be left behind in a bygone era um just because it is a horror movie doesn't mean it can't be a great film and i think in this case it is a great film technically and thematically there's a lot to unpack here and i'm so glad that i get to do it with these guys these these film scholars uh who who are all on great shows and it's just awesome hey and you guys are coming back for flash gordon right yeah oh we have to cover flash gordon we, we will set that up to, to go from one level of filmmaking to another, you guys can fill the gap. Yeah, well, and I'm going to say something now that's probably I should probably say for that show, but I, I actually think that Flash Gordon is a legitimately good movie. I mean, it's campy, but I think everything it's doing is it's it's doing it on purpose. You know, um, that doesn't necessarily make it not bad in some elements, but I don't think it's an incidental bad movie. I think it's. Uh, Everything it's doing, it's doing with a certain amount of glee. Because I don't think it would work if it didn't, you know. Yeah, it's an enjoyable film. I think of it, it's an enjoyable film. It is, and and I would rather watch this. And I'll, this is a controversial opinion. I'd rather watch Flash Gordon than the new Star Wars movies because this is just Flash Gordon goes by so quick, and there's so many random things happening. You're like, this is just a feast for the eyes. Right, and they're and they were adapting a comic strip and a serial, and they were doing it in the '80s, and everyone else would have done it different, particularly post Star Wars, and they chose to do it that way. And there's something to be said for that. And this, as Bill said, the soundtrack is awesome. Yes. Anytime you get to hear Queen in their prime, I'll take it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, is there anything else that you guys wanted to uh, plug before we close up? Well, I just want to say thank you, Nathan, for having Jackson and I on. It's been a pleasure. It always is. This is a great podcast, and uh, people can check out our uh, podcast, Father and Son Watch Horror, fatherandsonwatchhorror.com, or on iTunes, and all that kind of stuff, at Father Son Horror on Twitter. And uh, we've got the Scream series coming up, so we'll be have four episodes on that during October. Yes. And I will actually plug something for you, if you won't mention it. Uh, there's an episode you guys have right up now that you put up uh, with Dave Becker um, on Nosferatu. And I just want to say that's that's an awesome episode. Yeah, that was really a lot cool. of fun. It's always great having Dave on. We've had him on uh, three or four times. And, yeah, we did uh, Nosferatu, and then we did Shadow of the Vampire. Yes, the, which is a great underrated movie. Yes, it is. And we had a blast. I mean, usually our episodes are about an hour long. That was a two-hour-long episode, and we cut some stuff out. 
um, uh, especially at the beginning where Dave and I were talking old Hollywood stories. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So but it's it was it was an absolute blast. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah. And we had you we had you on for Fright Night. Well, a while back. Yes. Yes, and I made me feel good when I saw the Dave episode because I was just telling Bill, I was like, I felt like my episode with you was the longest one you guys had done because it was almost like two hours long. No, 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 no. And of course, Bill's been on several episodes, so he was on the he's been on the Quentin Tarantino episodes, you know, the, with Dave, and then you know we recently did the Stendhal syndrome. I introduced Jackson to old new Argento. That that you did. Right. That you and, did. We also did we we did Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was a great episode as well. And listen, the Quentin Tarantino video we did or episode we did that was originally supposed to be one episode, but it was three hours long, so we split it into two. We did. <laughs> I've already I've already I've, I've already got in my head what can I shock them with the next time they want me on. Well, you've already been lobbying for Creep One and Two. Yes, that's true. Yeah, Duplass Brothers. So yeah, we may have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, I think that's. It, Bill, did you have anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? Nope, not at all. It was a pleasure to have these two young gentlemen on, and hopefully they'll be coming on again for Flash or anything else. And uh, I'm curious to see what we have on the on the taps next time. Yeah, so uh, check out Father and Son Watch Horror, and then when we come back, next time we will be uh, talking with uh, Victor Rodriguez about his book, The Sound of Fear, and we'll also be talking about short stories for Halloween. Uh, good short stories to read during uh, October. So until then, uh, this is the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Take care. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.